0: History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be.
1: Do you love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charles, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. It began long ago, two young boys in an American town riding their bikes to school and little league practice. Over the years, the boys became fast friends, united in their love for stories, where things would go horribly wrong. Pour yourself a strong beverage and buckle up. You're in The Shallow End with Schnebly and Toth. Episode
2: 77 of The Shallow End with Schnebly and Toth. If we appear to be talking faster than normal, it's because this is the first podcast episode of this show that we've done under a duress of time. we have a time limit. JG loses power in roughly... 57 minutes. So if this episode sucks, we're going to blame it on the faulty electricity schedule in Ecuador. Yeah,
0: it's uh, it's it's been a little bit better uh, recently. The uh, rolling blackouts went from four hours a day to two hours a day, and not seven days a week, just five days a week. So it's getting better. See? But um, yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm going to take the positive where I can find it. There you go. And uh, right now... I'm loving the fact that uh, we don't have to go four hours a day without electricity.
2: So in view of the fact that you could lose electricity <laughs> earlier than scheduled, maybe you should go first. <laughs> All right. Well, I've got something <laughs>
0: prepared for you. I want to, it's, it's about the Clifton Suspension Bridge, um, hmm. which is above uh, an awe-inspiring 700-foot wide Avon Gorge in Bristol, England. Now, good grief! You know the kind of a bridge that I'm talking about—the you know sure. the big arch. Uh, yes. Yeah. Right. It's huge. Yeah. Suspension bridge, and it's been there for a while now, and it uh, it has quite a history of daredevils and death-defying stunts that have lured thrill seekers for generations to this bridge. It's an engineering marvel. It was completed in the 19th century. It's been around for a while. Wow! Yeah, and so these daredevil feats have been going on for quite some time. It's it's like a magnet for individuals seeking to prove their mettle. Um, one notable, notable incident, one of the earliest ones that I could find, goes all the way back to 1885.
2: Um, a woman named, meaning there were there were shallow end people even back then.
0: Nineteenth century yeah. shallow enders, um, <laughs> Sarah Ann Henley. Now this was an unintentional daredevil stunt, but it uh, okay. it worked out that way. She was in a heated argument with her boyfriend, and she was very upset. And they were near Avon Gorge, and she made a desperate leap from the bridge. She threw herself off of this bridge. Oh, good grief. But again, it was 1885 and fashions were different then. Uh, sure. She had um, a, a... Like a big hoop
2: skirt and a yeah, bustle. Right. And, yeah. yeah. And uh, like uh, petticoats. Layers and layers of petticoats. and Yeah. Her dress acted like a parachute. <laughs> <laughs> Like, like
0: you'd see in a cartoon, just and she drifted slowly into the uh, river. Uh, Well, not really slowly, but it slowed her down enough so that
2: slow enough that she wasn't, she wasn't killed. Right. She survived throughout
0: the years. People would do all kinds of death defying things, handstands on the rails and those, those sorts of things. Fast forward to 1957. When a flying officer for the Royal Air Force uh, seized the spotlight with this stunt, he was oh he, he was piloting a Vampire jet, and he was in the vicinity of the suspension bridge, and thought he would
2: prove himself by no. flying under the no. bridge. No, between the bridge and the river. Right. Oh boy. Yeah. Okay. At a speed of four hundred and fifty miles per hour. Now you said this bridge is roughly seven hundred feet mm-hmm. over the yeah. over the river. About seven hundred feet. Okay. Which it's
0: a is a lot when you're jumping off the bridge with only like a petticoat to uh,
2: <laughs> to save you. But when you're when you're coming in at Mach 2 <laughs> <laughs> in a vampire jet, a little different. It's probably a different story.
0: So he, he comes in, he makes his approach, 450 miles per hour whoosh, under the bridge, and he made it out the other side. He had a momentary celebration uh, right before his uh, jet uh, disintegrated against the unforgiving cliff walls on the south side of oh, the gorge.
2: No. Yes. No, sir, sir. Good man. That's just Poor piloting, sir. That's crazy. Yeah, I know it's insane. These incidents
0: prompted authorities to crack down on on stunting.
2: Post post a sign on the bridge. Absolutely no jets may be flown under this bridge. This means you.
0: They 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 did toughen their rules and regulations. Uh, they put them in place to deter any further under flights over jumps or other reckless behaviors on or around the bridge bungee jumping in particular in the modern era was explicitly prohibited um, i can imagine yeah because once bungee jumping became popular the a thing yeah this was uh this was definitely a goal for a lot of people base jumping same thing can't do that off the bridge but despite these strict measures, the Clifton suspension bridge remains a tempting challenge for those willing to defy the odds. It continues to beckon individuals like James, a daring <laughs> 22-year-old who disregarded the established rules, but did
2: live to recount his, inven- his adventure. Oh boy. Okay. Here we go. James, be glad we're not using your last name. James Marples in uh, oh, never mind <laughs> 2004
0: Oopsie <laughs> 22 22-year-old thrill seeker and bungee jumper uh, from Sheffield, England found himself yearning for an adrenaline rush. Now, this is a common thing for people who are thrill seekers and daredevils. They they have a different their mind, their brain is wired differently. Sure they experience adrenaline In a different way. Um, For me, it's the type of adrenaline rush I get when I like one of my distant ancestors was about to be eaten by a bear. Um, Right. It's not pleasant for me, but for a lot of people like James, it is. It's that heart pounding sense of tingling that they get. So he looks upon the majestic Clifton suspension bridge and a daring idea took root in his mind. It was a, des- a desire to do something extraordinary, not, not just jump off the bridge, not just bungee, but something that would etch his name in the, annals of ad- in the annals of audacious feats. So the idea percolated in his brain for a few days. He contemplated the rush of adrenaline, the soaring sensation of defying gravity, and the intoxicating thrill of living life on the edge. And perhaps it was the appeal of fleeting fame— The yearning for the moment in the spotlight or simply just this insatiable hunger for excitement that drove him forward. With each passing day, his plan began to take shape. He spent a lot of time working on it. He scoured the internet for information on the bridge. He studied its structure and plotted his descent meticulously. Good for him. As he acquired the necessary equipment, I guess, you know… I. Leading up to something like that for a person like this, the anticipation of it must be part of the thrill, I would think. I would think so. Yeah. So he's getting pretty excited about this. And finally, the day came, the moment when James stood at the precipice of his endeavor, climbing over the railings and crossing the point of no return. He felt a rush of emotions. He had his bungee cord attached. He was feeling a combination of fear, exhilaration, and determination. The wind was blowing pretty hard that day. Oh, boy. But everything else seemed like a go. As he leaped from the towering bridge, a sense of freedom washed over him. <laughs> okay. I'm speculating here. I don't know. The world blurred around him, and for a few breathtaking seconds, he was suspended in time and space. But James had more in store for this particular stunt he wasn't going to just bungee off the bridge his full pl- of course not <laughs> no no his full plan was this bungee jump off the suspension bridge when he got to the point where the bungee would snap him back he would light gasoline his gasoline soaked clothing on fire <sighs> and then as the bungee cord tightened up again as he was descending he would cut the bungee cord with a knife and plunge into the river thus extinguishing the flames and then of course a
2: perfect plan <laughs> swim
0: right. off to glory i guess I don't a know. perfect perfect plan yeah so he jumps off the bridge he reaches the point where he begins to feel the tension of the bungee cord tightening and he flicks his lighter james burst into flame he watched the blaze as it danced around him and he quickly reached for his knife to cut himself free. but even after all of his meticulous planning, he did overlook a, a tiny detail. Um, he didn't either either sharpen the knife or at the very least he didn't test it to see how quickly it would cut through the bungee. So he was dangling there over the river all on fire and stuff) <laughs> Sure. For about 26 seconds. Sure he was. It took him 26 seconds to cut through the rope. He plunged into the river below. It was a fiery spectacle and then swam off. I'm sure a mix of pain and adrenaline coursing (laughs) through his body. One eyewitness to James's daring stunt on the suspension bridge Shared their account with the BBC News Online, shedding some light on the dramatic sequence of the events. According to this observer, James walked up to the bridge with a determined demeanor, clearly (laughs) intending to carry out his plan. And this is what the guy saw from his perspective. Okay. As James reached the bridge's edge, he proceeded to clip himself onto the rope and harness a pivotal moment that marked the point of no return in this extraordinary endeavor. Sure. The witness then He's described committed. the heart stopping climax of James stunt. After his breathtaking jump, he ignited himself in a bold and dangerous twist, setting his entire body ablaze. In the moments that followed, the witness recounted that James struggled to cut the rope that held him suspended over the bridge, over the ab- abyss rather, as seconds turned into an agonizing stretch of time, he remained suspended, enveloped in flames. According to this eyewitness, eventually the witness stated, "It took James more than, in his estimate, 20 seconds. It was 26 seconds uh, to free himself from the from the rope. Then he plummeted into the water. Uh, he wasted no time and quickly swam away from the scene, leaving behind people that were." Distressed
2: at what they just witnessed, that had to be something. If you were if you were witnessing this from uh, from the bridge itself, or from the shore, or whatever, you had to be thinking, "Am I really seeing what I think I'm seeing?" I know. I mean, that would just be surreal. It's not something one is supposed to witness in life. Other eyewitness
0: accounts provided a vivid, uh, vivid and dramatic portrayal of the sequence of events that unfolded during his uh, his leap off the bridge. The consequences were immediate and pretty harsh. James Marples uh, suffered burns to his arms and face. He was taken to the Bristol Royal Infirmary and later transferred to a burn specialist unit in Franche Hospital. He did recover. And as the news of his stunt spread, it drew condemnation from a guy named David Kirk, who is the (laughs) chairman of the Dangerous Sports Club. (laughs) He noted the recklessness of James's endeavor. Yes, the chairman of the
2: Dangerous Sports Club is thrown down. Um, yeah, even you got to know you've screwed up when when the chairman of the Dangerous Sports Club <laughs> calls you out as an idiot.
0: <laughs> he highlighted the uh, lack of proper safety measures. Sergeant Steve Kendell from Avon. And uh, Somerset police described it as a dangerous act that caused distress to many people. Uh, The the stunt may have fulfilled James' quest for excitement, but it also brought with it Consequences that left him physically scarred and facing legal ramifications for his actions. Wow. It's a reminder wow. that some thrills come at a high cost, both personally and legally. Uh, this, this came from the BBC online. And again, it happened in 2004. Uh, I have not been able to find any more recent stunts off that particular suspension bridge since this one. <laughs> So maybe t- finally we've all learned a lesson. Maybe so. Or maybe not. Time will tell.
2: Hey, look, if you're passionate about sports, looking for a thrill, you need to check out the freshly redesigned XBet. They're calling it the last sports book you'll ever join. Yeah, they really do have it all, whether it's odds on basketball, combat sports, or even betting on the next Bitcoin dip. The best part is when you win, you get paid quick. It's not just about placing bets. XBet is a whole experience. They support athletes and shows. Just like ours, they give back to the community with tons of free bets and cash prize contests.
0: And did we mention they have a casino now? Spin the slots, play the roulette, or try your luck at the live tables, all
2: from a mobile platform that lets you enjoy the fun on the go. So whether you're super into sports betting or just curious about giving it a try, you need a site that makes it fun and easy. That's why you got to check out XBET. Sign up today using promo code SHALLOW and get a generous bonus of up to
0: $1,000 on your first deposit. That's right. Promo code SHALLOW for a
2: free cash bonus to kickstart your betting journey. With so many great UFC cards on the horizon and baseball season in full swing. See what I did there? Baseball, swing. There's never been a better time to play. Make your next bet, XBet. bet The stories of the very first Thanksgiving. Three days of celebrating peace between the Native Americans and pilgrims newly arrived from faraway shores. Feasts, games, relaxation, so pleasant to imagine, But guess what? It never really happened. We're Pilgrims Weren't Real. The group devoted to doing away with the story of how Thanksgiving began in America. And we're not just some conspiracy theory group. We're real, but Pilgrims weren't. Think about it. If they arrived in America in 1620, this country wasn't even established yet. So where would they have landed? Plymouth Rock? Think about it. The Chrysler Plymouth wasn't even invented until 1928, so how could they have come up with the name of a car that was still centuries away from being produced? Don't buy into the conspiracy. Think for yourself. Could pilgrims really sail all the way here on the Mayflower? It had no GPS, no electricity, or satellite TV. How would they have entertained themselves that long, or even found their way here? Please consider joining us in our fight to correct history. There were never any pilgrims. And if there were, why don't we still dress like they did and shoot turkeys? Oh, and turkeys aren't real either, but that's a whole separate commercial. Thanksgiving isn't real because pilgrims weren't real. This message has been paid for by Pilgrims Weren't Real, a wholly owned subsidiary of a 501c3 we haven't even named yet because we don't even believe in our own organization. Thanksgiving isn't real because pilgrims weren't real. Our email address is lifeguard at ShallowEndPodcast.com. Christian writes, Hey, Boo Crew. I don't know if that's, well, I guess technically. Yeah, in the grander scope of things. In the grander, under the the box umbrella. Okay, all right. My name is Meatball. I just finished episode (laughs) 15, and I know I just had the story, the Tickle Your Tootsie, and I had to share it. I worked at a hospital in Texas some odd years ago in radiology as an aide. One night while working, this lady comes into the ER complaining of severe neck pain. So the doctor examines her and orders a scan of her C-spine. That's her upper neck. We get the order, and off I go to pick up the patient. I walk in, introduce myself. Not as Meatball. I had to use my government name there. <laughs> probably, probably smart on Meatball's part. Hi, I'm Meatball. I'm here to do your uh, x-ray. She's a very nice middle-aged lady. I think somewhere in Jethro's era. Well, that's, that's kind. <laughs> People are now approximating story subjects to, uh, to Jethro's age. Uh-huh. <laughs> After I confirm her identity and tell her what we'll be scanning, I start pushing her stretcher over to the radiology area for her scan. On the way over, I ask, trying to make polite conversation, what brought her in, assuming a car accident or a fall. She chuckles lightly and tells me her husband wanted to spice up the bedroom because he was getting a little tired of the same old routine. Uh-oh. So,
0: <laughs> I mean, in my mind, I'm trying to picture what that would be that would,
2: would cause <laughs> a spinal injury. And maybe this is why this podcast is rated as explicit. So he buys, he buys a dog collar and a leash Oh no, for her to wear during their playtime. She agrees to wear it that night, and their activities commence. They're on the bed. He's getting a little too enthusiastic and accidentally shoves her off the bed. He tried to catch her using the only thing he had in his hands at the time. That's right, Uh, the dog leash. no. He yanks on it as she's going down causes what we later determined to be a spinal fracture. Fortunately, she ended up being all right other than the embarrassment and some slight pain. (laughs) I had to hold my stuff together while in front of the patient, but we laughed till I almost threw up as I recounted the story to the tech who was doing the scan. Still one of my favorite stories from that job. I love both your podcasts. Love you guys, especially Jethro. Daddy vibes. Hi, (laughs) Cat. Your friendly neighborhood, Meatball. Thanks, Meatball. Thanks, Meatball. It reminds me of a call I got when I was doing a
0: radio morning show from an overnight um, emergency room technician. Right. Where a um, a large lady, a hefty, a hefty gal uh, uh-huh. came in because she uh, had been, I guess, eating food. She was at a barbecue and okay. some of it got a little bit of it got stuck in her throat. It wasn't obstructing her airway or anything right. so she was able to breathe but she couldn't get it out and so so they uh they went to do some some x-rays and they had her take off her top and when they did uh a chicken wing fell out from under her breast <laughs> and and she said she was saving it for later <laughs> <laughs>
2: I guess there are worse places to hide a chicken <laughs> in the human body for later consumption. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I give her, uh, I give her big points for uh, for initiative and creativity. I wonder where she keeps her car keys. Yeah, yeah. No need to carry a purse. Look where I keep my keys. Ooh. <laughs> Well, we thank Christian Slash Meatball and all the people who continue to send us stories to lifeguard at shallowendpodcast.com. I will never look at a chicken wing the same way again.
1: Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money.
0: Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and
1: executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas. Plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, listeners. This is Anne Bogle, author, blogger, and creator of the podcast, What Should I Read Next? Since 2016, I've been helping readers bring more joy and delight into their reading lives. Every week, I take all things books and reading with a guest and guide them in discovering their next read. They share three books they love, one book they don't, and what they've been reading lately. And I recommend three titles they may enjoy reading next. Guests have said our conversations are like therapy, troubleshooting issues that have plagued their reading lives for years and possibly the rest of their lives as well. And of course, recommending books that meet the moment, whether they are looking for deep introspection to spur or encourage a life change or a frothy page-turner to help them escape the stresses of work school, everything. You'll learn something about yourself as a reader, and you'll definitely walk away confident to choose your next read with a whole list of new books and authors to try. So join us each Tuesday for What Should I Read Next? Subscribe now wherever you're listening to this podcast and visit our website, whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com to find out more. You're in the shallow end with Schnepley and Toth.
2: I want to thank another listener named Josh for sending this uh, this story idea it's called Operation Flagship, Ooh. and uh, it's, it's a fascinating, fascinating story, if I do say so myself. It self. sounds very official. Doesn't it? This actually goes back uh, to the early 80s, from 1981 to 1986. The U.S. Marshals Service conducted a series of operations that they called Fugitive Investigative Strike Team or FIST Mm. operations. And the idea was to capture thousands of wanted fugitives here in the U.S. Now, one tactic that these U.S. Marshals used to lure fugitives was a get-something-for-nothing scheme. And they were often quite successful. This was first demonstrated in 1984 when they conducted (laughs) FIST-7, which was a large-scale operation spanning over two months in eight states, and it resulted in the arrest of Get this, three thousand three hundred and nine wow. wow. fugitives.
0: Fist seven sounds like the name of a movie that you would rent from behind a curtain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't think about that. You know, that. back in the back in the day. Back, Remember that back in the day, when, <laughs> before uh, yeah, like, like like at Zips <laughs> in uh, Tucson.
2: Zips, man, I haven't thought of that in ages. <laughs> they had a curtain for all the naughty things. I'll have to take your word for it because I, sir, never went to Zips. <laughs> <laughs> or if I did, I never went behind the curtain. All right, fine. Enough. That's good enough. As far as anyone knows. <laughs> in New York City, these fugitives were sent a notice from the fictitious Brooklyn Bridge Delivery Service to pick up their valuable packages. In Buffalo, fugitives were notified they had won between $250 and $10,000 in a lottery In Hartford, Connecticut, younger fugitives were notified they'd won two free tickets to a Boy George concert, (laughs) including dinner for two and the use of a limo. But in all the cases, the fugitives were arrested when they tried to claim their packages or prizes at a specific locations. For the marshals, arresting fugitives while away from home was significantly safer because they were often caught unarmed and, of course, off guard.
0: I'm wondering how free Boy George tickets would do nowadays.
2: Yeah, I'm thinking not well. No, not with the youngsters. So in November of 1985, the chief deputy of the U.S. Marshals was a guy named Tobias Roche. And he gets together with a U.S. Marshal named Herbert Rutherford from District of Columbia. And they are talking about the fact that the Washington Redskins, remember they were still named the Redskins Mm -hmm. back Mm -hmm. then, uh, were incredibly hot. And it was almost impossible to get tickets for their sold-out home games. And in fact, at that time, the waiting list for season tickets lasted years. But these two guys get together, and they note that there is a much-anticipated game coming up in December, December 15th, between the Redskins and the Bengals, and the winner of that game would go to the playoffs. So the month before, Roche and he has got the approval of this guy, Rutherford, came up with this idea. He tells U.S. Deputy Marshals and Fugitive Task Force members of the Washington, D.C. Police Department to mail invitations to the last known addresses of approximately 3,000 wanted persons. (laughs) Now, the invitations were sent by the fictitious firm Flagship International Sports Television, Okay. Which also spells fist, but of course, <laughs> people didn't put that together. And the recipients who got these letters are told that it's a firm's promotional offer that they, the recipients, had won two complimentary tickets to the Redskins-Bengals game. And they were invited to a pregame brunch at the Washington Convention Center on the morning <laughs> of the game. They were also told they could enter a raffle to win 10 season tickets for the Washington Redskins and the grand prize of a week-long, all-expenses-paid trip to New Orleans to watch that year's Super Bowl. Wow. Now, these fugitives had all kinds of of crimes for which they were wanted, including assault, robbery, burglary, escape, narcotics, rape, arson, fraud, or frequently a combination of those crimes. Now, they send out 3,000 of these invitations to the last known addresses and 167 (laughs) replied saying, yeah, I'm down for that. I'll be there. But Roche wasn't done. He had come up with some clues as to what was really going on. Uh, for example, the invitation letters that were sent out by the marshals were signed by I, the the, the letter I, Michael Detnaw, D-E-T-N-A-W, which is actually wanted, spelled backward. <laughs> and when the fugitives called a specified phone number to confirm their attendance, an operator would redirect them to flagship's business manager, a guy named Marcus Cran, C-R-A-N, which is actually NARC spelled backwards. <laughs> oh, they're just toying with him now. <laughs> and the music on hold was I Fought the Law. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, they were clearly just, having a good time with this.
2: They were having a good time. And I think they knew that they were not dealing with the brightest bulbs, mm, right? Mm. These 167 people who said, yeah, I'll be there. Still the ruse is convincing enough that on the morning of December 15th the day this thing go, is supposed to go down a lawyer representing the actual local broadcaster for the Redskins game went to the the police command post to issue a cease and desist order saying that flagship international didn't have the appropriate license <laughs> to operate in the district so even even good guys are being are being fooled by this now, the marshals and the officers spent a month and a half training for this, for this sting, including three dress rehearsals. Ooh. And deputy marshals, were, deputy marshals were brought in from outside D.C. because the planners were feared that some of these fugitives, you know, who've, who've been in and out of jail, might actually recognize these local marshals who had guarded them in courtrooms or taken them to jail. Well, the the cops and the marshals get to the convention center at 5.30 a.m. on December 15th to set up this operation. And to minimize the risk, they set up two separate areas in the convention center. One area to greet the guests... In quotes, and another area where they could separate the fugitives in smaller batches to make arrests. And although the invitations (laughs) indicated these guests should arrive at 9 in the morning, many of them are so jazzed to get these Redskin tickets that they show up at 8 a.m. So to make the scene more believable and festive, these officers carry balloons, they're singing Redskins Cheers, they have a buffet brunch, they're playing videos from the very first Super Bowl win... Uh, and aside from tuxedos and service crew uniforms, one marshal wore a Redskins war bonnet while another wore a knockoff San Diego chicken suit to parade around the convention center <laughs> and also check out if any of these fugitives are becoming suspicious. Uh-huh. But none of the none of the fugitives had any clue what was going down. So these fugitives would arrive. these marshals, would check them in, you know, verify their IDs. Can I see your driver's license? And amazingly, most of these guys were still carrying driver's license. They would verify their identities through phone calls with the backroom staff, and then they gave them color-coded name tags. Now, code words such as double winner were used to warn that a specific fugitive was considered especially dangerous. They had female undercover officers who were dressed as cheerleaders and they were actually discreetly frisking these fugitives for concealed oh, weapons this is brilliant they would come up they would come up and give them hugs congratulatory hugs and put their arms around their waists while they would escort these fugitives to, to the next area <laughs> so a guy named lewis mckinney is chief of enforcement operations for the u.s marshals he posed as a top hat wearing master of ceremonies <laughs> for this program exclusively for the winners. Now, each group of fugitives, and they are like 10 to 20 per batch, were told to sit down in the auditorium to listen to a few remarks and then told, after this, after these remarks, you'll get awarded your prize. So upon mentioning the signal word, surprise, 25 members of the special operations group commanded by U.S. Deputy Marshal uh, William Deegan, are all wearing tactical gear. They storm the auditorium. They surround the fugitives who are handcuffed and escorted outside to awaiting buses. A total of 101 fugitives arrested by the end of the operation. Amazing. Isn't that genius? This was actually reporters from CBS and the LA Times were invited to uh, document <laughs> and do coverage. And, uh, and they, were, they were fantastic stories. And in fact, 2016, I don't know if you saw it, NFL Films did a short documentary for that uh, 30, uh, 30 for 30. Oh, I did not see um, that.
0: I love 30 for
2: 30. Yeah. Yeah. ESPN did that in 2017 about uh, the operation. And it's just called Strike Team. Fist Seven. Fist Seven, not what you think. Writing in 2019, authors Jerry Clark and Ed Palatella described Operation Flagship as, quote, one of the most legendary and effective in the history of the U.S. Marshals Services. They attributed its double success to the sheer number of fugitives caught in a single operation while also avoiding the dangers typically associated with capturing them at home or on the streets. It's just brilliant how they put this together and the fact that people would would fall for something well, like I, that
0: i guess is, that they rightly assumed that people like this are not the brightest bulbs and exactly and uh, they they played it they used that to their advantage i love the whole dressing up female officers as um as cheerleaders, cheerleaders. To, to pat them
2: down <laughs> give them congratulatory uh-huh. hugs and walk them with their arm around their mm-hmm. waist to, to to the winners area, yeah, no. yeah. It's it's genius. Operation flagship. And again, thanks to Josh, who sent that story idea in. I also, when I saw that JG, uh, I thought of uh, your son Josh, just because of the name Josh. Oh, okay, all right. Well, <laughs> I just wanted you to know that I paid attention to your children's names. I appreciate that. Um, <laughs> it was a shameless, a shameless endeavor to endear myself to you even more than I hope I already. Well, am. It, it,
0: actually, um, my son Josh created traps, shallow end traps for thieves when he was uh, a manager <laughs> at a. Um, I won't say the name of the place, but it, it, a major, major, major. Uh, national, international pizza uh, chain. He was the manager okay. of a local location okay. in Tucson. Right. I think I
2: I think I know the chain you're talking yeah,
0: about. Yeah, yeah. And uh, they had a, a problem with this one guy <laughs> who it was like every day at the same time, he would burst through the door, he would run okay. to the salad bar, he would grab a fistful of lettuce, he would dunk it in the ranch and then run out the side door. And, wow. Yeah, and this went on for several days. And so, Josh, my son, ever the problem solver, made, <laughs> right. made sure that the side door was totally locked. Um, oh. So, the next day, same time, guy runs in. Like a clock. Yeah. <laughs> grabs a fistful of lettuce, dunks it in the ranch dressing. And then runs full out into the door and knocks himself out.
2: <laughs> and the police show up to arrest a dazed, ranch dressing covered patron. Yes, huh? not really a patron. No, he was a he thief. He was a thief. Is what he was. I wonder why. I wonder why ranch. I don't know. I wonder why he didn't didn't try. I guess he was just at an age where he had decided that ranch was his thing. Yeah, he's. Apparently, no messing around with French or Thousand Island. He's a discerning
0: salad dressing aficionado. Yeah, yeah. Good for Josh. Yeah, yeah. Very smart. (laughs) We love hearing from you guys. We love your stories. We love your emails. Lifeguard at shallowendpodcast.com. We look forward to hanging out with you every single week.
2: And by the way, a very happy day before
0: Thanksgiving. Go hug a pilgrim. Yeah, and if you can't find a pilgrim, dress up like one and go around and hug strangers. <laughs> and while you're doing that, frisk them for weapons.
2: Yeah, always a good call. We'll see you next time.
0: As always, make good
2: choices. Your life might depend on it.
1: So concludes another episode of The Shallow End with Schnebley and toff We thank you for listening. Oh, be a dear, would you? Please subscribe to this podcast. Give these boys a five-star rating and think of something nice to say even if you have to make something up. And visit us online at shallowendpodcast.com. Okay, gotta go.